Hello and welcome to the Birkbeck Inspires Conversations with Alumni podcast series, where we hear from former students and find out more about their time at Birkbeck. Birkbeck Inspires is the college's free online events, activities and resources programme, which has been designed to inspire learning, provoke thought and entertain and excite curious minds. Today we hear from Dr David Gamblin, lecturer in Birkbeck's Organisational Psychology Department, and alumnus Rick Payne, who interview each other to find out more about their fields of expertise and what brought both of them to Birkbeck. Rick works at the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales, and is also a mentor on Birkbeck's Mentoring Pathways programme. If you are interested in mentoring a current student in the upcoming academic year, just like Rick, please visit bbk.ac.uk forward slash alumni forward slash mentoring. Hello, I'm Dr. David Gamblin. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Organisational Psychology at Birkbeck and Programme Director for the MSc in Management Consultancy and Organisational Change. Today, I'm really, really pleased to be joined by Rick Payne, a Birkbeck alumni from the MSc in Organisational Behaviour and current manager of Finance Direction, the Thought Leadership Programme from the ICAEW. Hello, Rick. Hi there, David. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. Glad it's uh, Friday, but um, yeah, very well, thank you. Wonderful. So we're going to do things slightly differently today from some of the other alumni interviews. I think we're going to start with me interviewing you and then um, flip it on its head a bit and get into a bit of a discussion about um, decision making and uncertainty, which I'm very much looking forward to. Yep, so um, <laughs> wonderful. Uh, so to kick things off, Rick, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your current role? Yeah, so it's uh, sort of thinking about where to start going way, way back. Many years ago, I uh, got my first degree in economics from, from Manchester, trained as a chartered accountant with KPMG, and then spent 17 years in wholesale banking. Um, towards the end of that, I got involved in organisational development, and uh, that sort of took me towards Birkbeck and studying the degree we'll talk about a little bit later. But currently I work at the ICAEW, the Institute of Chartered Accountants, and I do, I guess, what you'd call practical applied management research, which involves talking to a lot of members, um, finding out insights from them, and then putting it together in reports and presentations and getting those learnings out to other members. And hopefully through that, we help people with their careers and also we um, help their businesses to, to be more successful. Super, sounds like a really um, varied role actually. So a, a good balance of research and practice sounds a lot like the Birkbeck model in, in the Department of Organisational Psychology, that science practitioner role. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what you did at Birkbeck and when that was. Yes, so I did um, a master's degree in organisational behaviour, um, which is sort of occupational psychology without the, uh, the sort of chartership at the end of it. And I was at Birkbeck on the, I was studying from 2004 to 2007. 
Um, so for those of you listening who don't know anything about organizational behavior, it covers topics like organizational change, training and development, selection and assessment, work and well-being, quite a broad range of anything to do with, I guess, people and organization. So a lot of, a lot of people that will have been uh, studying at Birkbeck, I'm sure a lot of the, the people listening will um, be able to empathize with this, will be working, studying at the same time, uh, come from busy backgrounds, busy lives. Uh, I'm just wondering, how did, how did you find it? Yeah, it was quite strange for me because I was going through two changes at the same time. So I'd, uh, when I started studying, I'd just left um, banking to set up as a coach and a trainer. But I wanted that sort of, I suppose, more rigorous training behind me through the masters. So I was trying to set up a business and, and also do the research, do the reading and, and work with um, with everything we had to on the course they were complementary in many respects so they did help uh, i think it helped on both sides but it is it is quite a juggling act um, if i'm honest i got really into the research side and, and the masters and probably paid a little bit too much attention to that and a little too <laughs> little attention to setting up as a as an independent uh, consultant um, but one of the things that um, it's worth mentioning i guess is that at the time, as far as I know, there wasn't really a mentoring scheme as such, but I'm now involved in the Birkbeck mentoring scheme and working with people who are on the final years of their degrees and some people really, really having to work hard to, to balance the, the two and you know, set priorities. And I think the mentoring program can help with that to make sure people stay focused on, on doing what they need to do and what's most important for them. So hopefully um, people who now have that opportunity to take advantage of the mentoring scheme, um, I'd highly recommend it. And although I had a year off doing it last year because I'd already done four, I'm, I've applied again, hopefully we'll get accepted to, to take up a, another mentee this year. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. And, and re really do recommend people uh, get involved with that. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, listening uh, alumni or students will, will definitely relate to that uh, difficulty in balancing the workload but uh, really nice to hear that they were quite complementary and, and the nice synergy that you mm. found between um, studying the research and what you were putting in practice as well. Yeah it does, um, does remind me actually of um, one of our professors uh, at the time uh, was uh, very interested in the word stress and <laughs> you know we would always say it's quite stressful to be juggling um, work and, and studying and he'd say well what is stress it's it's a bit of a nothing term it means everything to everybody so he really hated the term and said we needed to get more precise um was it anxiety or overwhelm or mm. whatever and, and what was our evidence and what were the different symptoms and it was all uh, very challenging at the time so um i think we all find use of the word stress quite useful but uh, he was very keen to make sure we were more specific and I, I guess that was one of the great things about studying at Birkbeck was having your ideas challenged. Yeah I think that's really nice we talk about at, at induction in our department uh, about the Birkbeck approach that that critical thinking viewing a lot of the theory through, through a critical eye and I think now more than ever that's really come into play with with a lot of the theory that we discuss and frameworks being um, challenged as we go through lockdown and pandemic and say mm. How, how well do they stand up? Is this predicting what people are feeling? Are there gaps in the literature that, that really 
we need filling at some point. Mm. So really nice to, to hear that that um, critical perspective was being taken. And, and I'm curious, how did, how did you find it? Is it, is it something that you uh, really enjoyed? Is it something you found quite difficult getting into that frame of mind? I, I think it's, it's sometimes a mix. Some people find it very challenging. Some people uh, take to it really quickly. I think I did. It took a while. I think I remember being very disappointed with the mark I got for my first essay, which I thought was fantastic um, <laughs> and sort of got some some critique, constructive critique. And you started then sort of clicked in. OK, I now sort of get it. It's um, yes. What are the practical implications? But what's the rigor and the, the underlying thinking that you need to, to put in? What are the what is the academic? side to this and mm. you know i think that was quite difficult to to get to grips with the importance of theory and then you start as you progress you start to realize well we're all sort of using theories we don't call them theories necessarily but we <laughs> generalize about how the world works and um yeah so it, it was difficult to start with but i think you know with the help of tutors and as you work through and you get more used to it it, it does become more more natural and it's certainly really been helpful, my job. And I think it's interesting just having this conversation. One of the things I really enjoyed studying was different perspectives on organisations and images mm. of organisation, which uh, is, a, is a really good book, um, looking at different metaphors and lenses we use. So do we view organisations as machines? And obviously this is second nature to David, but um, for me it was all very new. Do we treat them as machines or cultures or political arenas and it's just occurred to me that maybe I should use those metaphors again and go through the implications of the pandemic and business and take on those different lenses and see what conclusions it, it leads me to. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, from, from, from my uh, research background is around decision making. So the number of metaphors that get used for the brain um, changes throughout the time. So from going back to people describing it with, you know, the humours all the way to more mechanical models and then famously the, the computer metaphor for the brain. And now people are starting to challenge whether that's a particularly good metaphor or not. Is the brain really like a computer or is that leading us to making misconceptions about what, what the brain does and what its purpose does? So, yeah, looking at things through different lenses and metaphors, I think is a, a really interesting one and trying not to get stuck in the same lens um, for a prolonged period of time without challenging it. So that kind of brings me on to the, the next question. I was going to ask, um, what was it about studying organizational behavior has really helped you in your career or your uh, life, your research, uh, any of the roles that you've taken since Birkbeck? I suppose that um, multiple perspective and critical angle might be one. Uh, I wonder, has it, has it translated into to what you do currently? Uh, very much so. So first of all, I don't think I would have got the job I currently have, which I really enjoy without having that master's degree in organisational behaviour, because I, I think it gave me a, a uniqueness of, well, obviously not totally unique, but uh, quite unusual to be a qualified accountant with a, with a master's in organisational behaviour. So I was able to bring together both my sort of business knowledge with that people side of things and as our members go through their careers the technical stuff becomes for many of them uh, less and less important mm. and it's more about leadership building teams um, building systems 
developing strategies and so on. So being able to bring all of that knowledge um, from, from the master's degree and then also the ability to research things. So how do you take a question and then pull it apart and start to come up with something that maybe is a bit more interesting than the standard approaches to this that we you know, we can read by the generalized consultancy things quite often um, mm. by having that critical perspective the ability to research the the knowledge that there are many ways of looking at different questions certainly has helped me in my role and hopefully produce some outputs which are a bit different to the to the normal stuff that that comes out of organizations um, uh, on business so yeah, definitely has been fundamental to me being able to do my role um, at the ICAEW. Yeah, that, that's great to hear and um, totally agree with that, that, that the importance of conducting research properly, uh, such an important skill and a transferable skill to, to pick up on. I think there's a reason why our research methods module is one of the first ones that, that people do, and it might be a bit of a cruel in, introduction sometimes, but such an important one to get in that frame of mind early on, um, how to conduct research and how to critique what other people have done with their research to make sure it sort of stands up to, to scrutiny. I think really important and, and really good to hear that you're, you're carrying on with the research in your, in your current role. Really, really interesting. Um, are there any research projects that you're working on at the minute or any really interesting research findings that, that you would like to mention? Yeah, I guess the most current one at the moment is I'm looking at the CFO and strategy. Uh, it's mm. been quite a long-term project for various reasons. And, you know, that involved interviewing a number of CFOs from different backgrounds. And it was, I suppose, the interesting thing coming out, which I probably wouldn't have even thought about or questioned uh, before the degree around the difference between emergent strategy and planned strategy, the mm. idea that, you know, strategies, maybe they emerge from patterns and sort of post-rationalization um, versus perhaps the traditional view that you, you sit down and discuss what your strategy is going to be, you map it out and, uh, and plan it. And I guess it's become brought home to everybody now that strategies yeah. can go out the window very, very quickly. Yeah. So that, I guess, is most currently. Also, it's been about exploring the different roles that the chief financial officer plays in strategy. So anything from orchestrating the process, from adjudicating and allocating resources, but also um, how they can be quite creative and come up with mm. new ideas and new strategies and emphasizing that part of the role as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, my question is, where can we read any of, of this? Is this is this in house at the ICAW? Do you do you publish anywhere? Oh no, this is all um, published. Um, the certainly the the paper on um, in CFO and strategy part one um, mm. is freely available to everyone. I think if you googled ICAEW CFO and strategy, you should get to the report and. We tend to keep our thought leadership work open to everybody. Um, uh, so it, it should be findable. Um, and previous work on things like finance business partnering, which has some interesting parallels with human resources um, business partnering where the concept um, came. That's been one of our most successful pieces. Again, that's, that's available to everybody. 
think I'm gonna I'm gonna check this out after after we wrap up today. It sounds really interesting. You 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 hear about research that's done on on people in leadership positions and about them acquiring new skills. Um, but from from what you're talking about as well with the the fact that people maybe shift onto the soft skills, the leadership resource allocation away from some of the technical skills is also an element of sort of stop doing certain things or, or even uh, unlearning certain behaviors. So I think that's really, really interesting. So I guess we were going to um, turn the tables a, a little bit and um, I was going to ask you about your time at Birkbeck and what you've enjoyed most. I've been at Birkbeck for just over a year, year and a half. Um, and I, and I think probably Kate McKenzie Davy, who's, who's just retired after 26 years at Birkbeck, and I, I think you all have probably studied under under Kate, will you, Rick? Yes, I did indeed. Super Organization yeah. of politics and change. I remember it well. Wonderful. Um, so as as Kate's uh, uh, retiring this year, I think she said it best, and it's it's the students that make it special, and and I'd whole wholeheartedly agree to that. Um, we get such a nice mix of students from different backgrounds, different uh, uh, work experience. Um, it means they can bring all kinds of different things to the table when we're having discussion. Um, we had a, a nice example over the summer, the module I taught with my uh, colleague and co-convener, Dr. Um, Uracha Chachakul Nayoyudya, um, on workplace health and safety. Um, people from backgrounds such as the hospitality industry, people working in greeting cards companies, um, people in care homes, all of these different backgrounds bringing different stories to the table meant that we could have quite interesting um, discussions, anything from can employee engagement programs be used as a method of controlling uh, your employees, is positivity part of professionalism, should we have to force people to put on a happy face for example, or where did discussions around diversity and equality fit into a subject like uh, workplace health and safety and I and I don't know I just don't think you get these kind of discussions at other institutions whereas at Birkbeck it's all of these different backgrounds coming together different experiences that people can share with the group in a, in a really um, critical and open-minded way so I guess that'll be my answer I'm copying Kate and I'm saying it's the, it's the students for me that have made it made it quite a special place to teach yeah, I think that I'd certainly echo that we as a sort of student, one of the great things was you'd start off in class discussing an issue with each other in working groups and, and with, um, with the lecturer and then we'd end up going down the pub and sharing those uh, <laughs> or continuing the discussion quite often. It was really um, fascinating, as you say, to discuss those things with people from lots yeah. of different backgrounds and I'm sure a lot of my fellow students would say they've made some of their best friends um, through uh, studying at Birkbeck and I certainly keep in touch with a, with a number of them um, to this day. So in that uh, spirit, we uh, thought we would try and recreate a bit of a discussion of, of an issue to give perhaps uh, people a feel for, for what it's like. And at the ICAW, we're particularly interested at the moment uh, in decision-making under uncertainty, which is one of David's uh, uh, areas of expertise. So we thought we'd, we'd have a bit of a discussion and I'd, I'd pose some questions to David on, uh, on that topic. 
And maybe, David, you could start off by exploring the main ways in which people make decisions. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll start at the beginning and turn, turn the clock back a bit because um, I suppose not even that long ago, talking 40s and 50s maybe, decision-making theory was in the hands of uh, economists. And they did, were responsible for uh, a lot of the normative decision-making models, which teach us how we should make decisions, a kind of optimum benchmarks. And a lot of economists claimed that humans were rational beings. We've evolved to be rational thinkers. The brain is essentially a, a machine for making rational judgments and that kind of thing. And uh, one of the famous theories that stem from that is the expected value theory, which tells us that to work out um, whether or not we go with an option, we need to work out the, the expected value of what that option, what it's worth. So to do that, we would look at all of the different outcomes that could come about with a, with a particular option, um, whether it's in investing in a, a new fund or if it's the decision to go for a picnic. We look at all the different outcomes that, that are possible. We take the probability of each one and multiply it by the value that we would get if that situation did occur. And we sum all those products up. That gives us an expected value for each option. And then we compare across options, say which one is going to give us the highest value. And in theory, we, we go with that one. Um, so it's a very rational, very analytical process to decision making. And it forms the basis of a lot of decision aids um, and trainings and workshops today. People will, will train people to become a better decision maker, to become a better thinker. This is what you need to do. You need to structure your decision like this, generate a, a grid of uh, possible outcomes and options and, and do a lot of work with, with probability and, and forecasting. Indeed, and that is certainly um, underlies a lot of the accounting approach to, uh, to decision making and indeed some of the things I've been reading are still pushing that, uh, that approach very much uh, still, still with us. Yeah, I think so. It's a very, very popular one. It's a very tempting one as well to, to introduce in a, in a workshop or a decision aid for sure. Uh, and I, I guess no surprise is that it's, it's still being taught. I suppose right, rightly or wrongly, because stemming from that uh, came Daniel Kahneman and his colleague Amos Tversky, and they brought the heuristics and biases approach. And if someone like Richard Thaler is seen as the, the father of behavioral economics, uh, Daniel Kahneman is probably seen as, as the godfather of that movement. And he really challenged that normative approach brought on by economists, things like expected value theory, and said, is that really how people make decisions? Are we really rational thinkers? Is the brain a rational machine? And their line of research exposed a number of systematic errors, sort of predictable patterns, uh, in error that, that people make when they're making decisions. And from that, Carmen proposed two different types of decision-making or processing. Uh, the first was type one, which is a, an intuitive, um, quick, fast, low-cost type of decision-making. And the second was type two, which is the analytical, effortful, um, more rule-based, process-based form of decision-making that's similar to um, normative approaches and, and uh, theories proposed by economists. So he, he split it down the middle and, and said, well, actually, we've got a lot of these areas that people make when, when they're decision making. And their line of research was identifying a lot of heuristics and biases that people had. Um, and as well as um, 
proposing this sort of dual process theory that there might be two different uh, two different systems, Kahneman called it, the intuitive and the analytical. Uh, some debate about whether there's actually two systems, whether they're two separate things, or whether it's more like a continuum with uh, analytical in intuition at the either ends of that scale. And probably a big thing coming from that line of work is this idea that uh, intuition shouldn't be trusted because it leads to a lot of errors. And then kind of in contrast to that, uh, Gary Klein came along with a naturalistic decision-making uh, program, a line of research that said, well, hang on, we've got a lot of experts out there. We've got a lot of people in the military. We've got doctors, we've got firefighters, people that work in incredibly challenging situations that have to make snap judgments under pressure. And they're able to do a really good job of it, actually. How do they do that? If, like Carmen said, uh, people make a lot of intuitive errors. So Klein's research um, challenged, I suppose, that notion, but also the way that Carmen and, and, and that heuristics and biases approach was quite lab-based, started, started to look at people in the real world, bring in a bit more observational data and say, what are people actually doing? How come they're so good at uh, decision-making? So I suppose those would be the, the kind of three or four big stereotypes across decision-making. You've got the very, very rational, economic model. You've got Kahneman's type of biases, that intuition, which leads to a lot of errors. And you've got Klein's version, which leads to very, very accurate and amazing insights a lot of the time. Right. I think, yeah, it's really interesting to sort of reflect on the different ways and, and think about ourselves and how we, how we make decisions. And mm. given these different approaches, maybe you could talk a bit about the pros and cons of the different approaches and what you what you do to, to make the, the most of things. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go through each one. They've, they've each got sort of pros, pros and cons that sometimes uh, would just be the opposite of, of the, each other. But uh, I suppose starting with the normative approach, which is the, the economic model, the idea of expected value theory, this very, very process-driven uh, version working on probabilities. The pro for it is that it provides optimum benchmarks or outcomes. So if you can do it and you've got the data and you can get these probability judgments from, uh, I guess, a lot of historical data that you can use, then it should be providing you the optimum outcome. That should be the correct solution, as, as economists would say. The con is people don't really think like this. It's very, very difficult for people to do. And as a result, a lot of trainings around uh, expected value theory and the economic model end up failing in the long term. P people walk away thinking that they've learned this and they can do it. But in the end, it becomes very, very unnatural and very difficult for people to do. And they end up falling back on uh, things like intuition. And sometimes they do that without even realizing they're not doing um, the economic um, solution anymore. But Does that relate to the... Uh... I was wondering if that relates to the idea of you um, you know what decision you want to make based on your heuristic and then you back it up by some spurious numbers and rational uh, yeah. expected value calculation. Yeah, de yeah, definitely. It, it, it's absolutely true. People will, will um, think that they're doing something like an expected value theory. They're plotting the grid. They're collecting the data. But little biases sneak in there all the time. So things like confirmation bias, and you see people starting to tweak the probabilities and the values in this grid to make sure the solution 
churns out the thing that they wanted to in the first place. So it's not a it's not a silver bullet getting people to make decisions in this way. There's there's still a lot of uh, heuristics and biases that are sort of ghosts in the machine that are very very hard to get rid of. Yeah, and and there's a there's a whole host of research on it that that people really struggle with putting it into practice. So people aren't particularly good at following probability rules. So you, you'll find circumstances where people's probabilities don't sum to one um, when, when they should. There, there can't be um, more, more outcomes than there are in terms of probability. It should all add up to 100%. Um, we get things in the research like areas of transitivity and preference reversals. And I suppose one of, one of my favorites seeing as we're in a kind of financial theme, I suppose, today is the idea that a, a credit surcharge and a cash discount are basically the same thing. They're saying that there are different prices for using cash and for your card. But when you describe a transaction uh, using these different, different frames, it can have different results. So people find it a lot more persuasive if you say there's a credit surcharge on this transaction. They then avoid it and pay cash. If you tell people, oh, there's a cash discount on this, they're not as convinced and might be happy enough just going along with the card. So people are quite happy to forego a discount, but they're not as happy uh, if they think they're gonna be uh, penalized for something. And it's little things like that, which if you were plotting it out in a, a rational model, an economic model, like expected value theory, it shouldn't make a difference. They're basically saying the same thing. But when you get people to actually do it in the real world, you find these little, little reversals. Uh, and, and then for the sort of Kahneman line of research, intuition in, in Kahneman's mind is very fast. It's very low cost. Uh, some researchers say it has no cost whatsoever. Having an intuition about something, a gut feeling, some people say costs absolutely nothing in terms of cognitive resource and we should be able to do it no matter how busy we are. Others will say, well, maybe not nothing, but certainly low, low cost, very, very easy to do. Um, and a lot of the time it's good enough. It gets us from A to B. Throughout the day, we're using these uh, intuitions, we're using these heuristics to get by, um, and we make a lot of our decisions based on it. Things like opting for the default a lot of the time um, would, would be a kind of low cost intuitive rule, uh, which a lot of the time works. We take our default route home, we choose our default coffee from the shop. We don't sit there and analyze every single um, possible coffee and what the probability is that it's going to give us a certain level of satisfaction, we go with that default, that gut feel. Uh, the con is that it leads to a lot of biases, um, which, I, which I guess we'll, we'll talk about uh, in a bit. Things like overconfidence and anchoring biases, um, framing effects. So although it's low cost and a lot of the time it's good enough, it is the one that leads to, to biases and errors. In terms of analytical thinking, uh, the pro, it would just be the reverse of the type one, really. Uh, analytical thinking can be more accurate. It tends to give us the good benchmarks, but the con is it's slow, it's effortful, and it's very, very costly in terms of cognitive resource. There's not a lot that you can do while doing a, a complex bit of analysis. It takes up a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of brain power. And then the, the other side of that would be the, the Gary Klein approach, talking about expertise and expert intuition. Again, it's kind of like reversing again. Uh, the pro is that it can result in incredibly accurate decisions in very, very difficult situ situations like 
uh, in an emergency room or under fire from, from an enemy in a military scenario, um, people can come up with an amazing solutions to problems uh, using their intuition. The, the downside of it, the con, is that uh, it requires extensive experience in order to get to that point where you can rely on your expert intuition. And it's not just experience in terms of uh, time in the role, it's uh, time in a role, but it needs to be a kind environment. So it can't be too noisy. That means you can't have too many confounding variables at play. You can't have a lot of spurious correlation. You need to be uh, quite kind and quite clean and you're getting nice, good, timely feedback. Um, mm. So I guess those would be the, the pros and cons of the different, different ones. They're, I suppose quite and, similar, yeah. And given those pros and cons, what, what sort of practical advice arises out of that for helping people to make better decisions? The big question, I guess. Yeah, it's the, it's the big question, a tough one. I've tried to stick to a, to a, a few here, but uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a huge field of work, I think, that's still ongoing as to, to how do we conquer this? Because in some aspects, the, the heuristics and biases are fairly, fairly new uh, in, in terms of psychology. Um, but I've, I've got a few points that, that I would mention. Uh, the first one would be awareness. I think awareness is really, really important. Awareness of the different types of biases, the different types of heuristics we use, and the different traps and pitfalls that we might fall into. So I suppose everyone listening, go and have a read of Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow would be a good starting point, I think. That's a really good uh, example uh, of a sort of lifetime's amount of research that's gone into the, the kind of pitfalls that people fall into, the traps people fall into, and, and um, what to be aware of. And it's a good starting point, I think, because it may not make you a perfect decision maker, but what it's going to do is highlight areas where you need to be extra careful. You need to exercise a little bit caution, a little bit of extra caution. So little things that you can do if you feel like you're falling into an area where a bias could, could sneak in. So you can do things like reframing the information. So the credit surcharge example, if someone's telling you that there's a, a credit surcharge, you can reframe that question and say, would I have reached the same decision if I thought of this as a cash discount? The same thing if you're in the supermarket and you see some sausages marked up as 80% meat, think in your head, okay, what if that sticker said 20% non-meat? Would that change your mind about how delicious those sausages are going to be? Um, because if, if so, uh, you might be falling into a trap of a, of a bias. Um, so try and re reframing inf information, trying to take the outside view. We're very, very good at making decisions based on information that's presented to us. So what we can see right in front of us, Carmen calls this YZATI or what you see is all there is. Uh, we're very, very good at making decisions based on um, what's right in front of our eyes, but we're not so good at making decisions or drawing conclusions from what's missing. Um, so trying to take a step back, trying to look at the outside view and finding uh, useful reference classes, so people that have been in similar situations, what did they do, did they succeed, did they fail, how similar are they to me, how similar is their situation to what I'm going through at the minute. And we should do this automatically in novel situations, for example, things that we're very, very uh, new to us, we can almost feel slipping back into that analytical mode of thinking. So imagine driving your car and you're on a 
bit of unfamiliar road and unfamiliar junction, you find yourself going into analytic mode and any conversation that you're holding with a passenger sort of pauses and you draw that extra attentional resource into figuring out where you are. But what about routine ones, that route home that you always take? You tend not to think too much, you tend not to process too much about what's going on, and you can quite happily hold a conversation with other people in the car, quite complicated conversation, because you're not using up too much energy and effort uh, on the drive. So it's those kind of novel situations where people are reverting back to intuition, where biases can, can occur, and just being extra careful um, that we're not falling into a trap of, of one of these heuristics and biases and think, okay, maybe I can analyze this a little bit more, reframe the question, take the outside view and that kind of thing. That's really helpful. I think we can, can take a lot, lot of that. I like the idea of the, the sausages in particular, sort of practicing <laughs> on, on things like that. Um, just finally, um, clearly people are currently making lots of decisions under uncertainty, but also a lot of pressure. And I know that's another area you've looked at is sort of taking um, decisions when you're under a lot of pressure. Is there anything particular you'd mention there just to, to wrap up with? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I'll go back to your professor from, from earlier you were talking about who, who maybe didn't like the word stress. I think we can be maybe a bit specific and try and challenge what we're thinking about stress because sometimes pressure is a good thing and sometimes adding pressure uh, helps. So adding pressure can um, increase the effort we put in. So something like increasing accountability, transparency or incentives can add pressure and it can increase effort. And there are certain scenarios where increased effort can result in better decision-making um, performance, but not always, because when we talk about stress in terms of anxiety, it's a, it's a different matter. Uh, as I mentioned, when we're sort of driving in the car, we've got this limited pool of attentional resource. We can either spend it analyzing the route or we can do um, hold the conversation we're having. And trying to divvy up that attention onto different tasks is quite an important thing because if we start drawing attention away from the task we're trying to complete, we end up making mistakes or might resort back to uh, heuristic and bias and that kind of thing. So there are uh, a lot of downsides to this. We can fall into the trap of making sort of lapses and slips, forgetting certain things, applying the wrong rule. Uh, and a lot of the times this is unintentional. There are times as well when it can be intentional, and those are known as violations in the taxonomy of human error. So increasing, a very, increasing the pressure and making a very, very pressurized situation can increase the, the number of violations people make as well. So trying to do things sneakily, take shortcuts, flout the rules in order to maybe get home on time. You know, if you're an auditor, maybe, the, maybe we're not gonna check that final, um, uh, invoice back to the you know, debtor's ledger or something where we know we're going to say that's good enough that's we've got a good coverage so far um, so that's the kind of violation people might be making on purpose uh, so I suppose what do we do about it I, I guess there's two general approaches um, one would be a, a kind of individual approach and one would be a systems approach and I guess the ICAW exams is a useful example I mean I didn't do all of mine, but I got through the professional stage. And um, I'll tell you, it's a very difficult set of questions and it's a very strict time limit. People are under a, a fair bit of pressure. And I suppose there's a reason why the pass mark is, what is it, is it 55%, Rick? It, I think so, I think so, yes. 
Okay, there's a reason why it's not 90% or, or you know, 95% to pass. It's because a highly pressurized environment, you've got to expect errors with a, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, difficult questions and a time limit to boot. People are gonna make errors. So the system, systems approach is all about that. We are human, we've got to expect error. So is there anything that we can do to focus on the system rather than the individual and say, can we engineer things in the environment to make it a bit easier for people? Uh, I suppose in the, in the exam example, it would be reducing the difficulty of the question, removing the time limit, adding people that can help or adding um, resources and, and uh, machines to help us. Um, the individual on the, not approach, on the other hand, would focus on the individual and say, what can we do with this person to reduce their stress? Um, we can do things like mindfulness, maybe, to reduce the impact of stress, or we can reduce the demand that certain tasks have on an individual through repetition and practice. So the more and more you do something, uh, the easier it becomes. And I think for a comprehensive answer, you, you've probably got to do a bit of both. Focusing purely on the individual is a little bit unfair because it puts a lot of the blame on them. But there are skills and things that, that we can equip them with to, to reduce the stress and the demand of what they're doing. But overall, I think we need to look at the, the systems approach, which, which I think a lot of auditors will appreciate. And, and, and maybe the, the final tip would be in terms of decision making and the systems approach is um, not just focusing on outcomes when we're looking at our decision making we're living in a very uncertain world and a very noisy world there are a lot of times when outcomes are positive but have resulted from chance and sometimes a very very poor um, system and decision making process that went into it and vice versa a lot of very good decision making might go on in the background that leads to a bad outcome which which could be chance so i guess i won't need to tell the auditors out there uh, the importance of controls testing and focusing on the system, not just the outcome, because there's a lot of noise and a lot of chance going on. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I, I, we do sort of urge people to review their processes because we sometimes we're just on to the next problem, on to the next issue without reviewing how can we do things better? What have what have we learned? So, David, uh, from my perspective and um, what we're what we're doing at ICAW, that's been really helpful. And I'm sure our members and audience will get some valuable tips and hopefully we'll follow up on some of those ideas. So thank you very much, David. Yeah, no problem, my pleasure. It's been really enjoyable to, to have someone to talk to about, about all of these uh, different bits of theory and research. So thank you very much. Well, that's the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening. Make sure you check out what else Birkbeck Inspires has in store by visiting our website at bbk.ac.uk forward slash Birkbeck inspires.